Today we'll be discussing the award-winning movie The Power of the Dog, and we'll be discussing Anthrax. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing the recent award-winning movie, The Power of the Dog, and we'll be discussing Anthrax. What causes it? Now, when you say Anthrax, do you mean the band, the metal band, Anthrax? I, I didn't, but I guess we could. 90s? We could bring the noise, yeah, huh? Go. A great collaboration with Public Enemy. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't think that's what Hello. we meant. I meant the disease anthrax. We could talk about what causes it, you know, how you contract it, how you treat it. Sure. Okay. That's also good. Yeah. Okay. But also, people should look up the band. They were great. They were they were trailblazers. I want to ask you, Ali, about this movie, The Power of the Dog. It, you know, has won tons of awards, as we all know. A very big movie for Netflix and for Jane Campion. You watched it. A- Jane Campion being the director, in case people aren't as right. uh, director centric as you Sorry, are. Sorry, I apologize. You told yes. me about it a couple months ago, actually, at the end of 2021. You said you you loved it. It was the best thing you've ever. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you you, you totally you, exaggerating. You, you spoke on, very highly of it. So I thought we should talk about it. So I don't know. Why don't we talk a bit about the background of the movie and some interesting facts, and then we can kind of each talk about what we thought about it. Okay. Why not? So this, as we mentioned, is a movie directed by Jane Campion. It's based on a novel by Thomas Savage, which has the same name. And Jane Campion filmed it in her native New Zealand, even though it takes place in America. Uh, You know, New Zealand stands in for that. Amazing Vistas. It's a beautifully shot movie. And then has these big name actors. Uh, There's four main roles. You have Benedict Cumberbatch as uh, Phil Burbank, one of the main characters. His brother's played by Jesse Plemons, who we you guys might know from Friday Night Lights. He's been in tons of movies since that time. Fargo. Fargo, Fargo yes. Jesse, yeah. Yeah, and so then also Fargo. from Fargo, Kirsten Dunst plays right. George Burbank's eventual love interest and wife. And of course, in real life, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons are married. It's too crazy. Yeah. And then Cody Smith-McPhee plays it, Kirsten Dunst's son in the movie. He's a great actor as well. I, of course, remember him for playing Nightcrawler from the newer X-Men movies. Yes. Goth. The goth uh, superhero. Yeah. So, I don't know. Do you want to just give a quick kind of synopsis of the movie without spoiling anything? Well, I mean, eventually we'll have to spoil Mm. it. I mean, that's how these things work. But before we do, we'll let you know that we're spoiling it. But yeah, this is... Okay, so he, let me just tell you this, Asif. The reason you got a message from me was because I expected so little of this movie. I, you know, it was in one of the, it was somewhere in the top 10 on Netflix. I didn't know anything about it. And sometimes, and I think you agree with this, sometimes going into a movie with zero knowledge, having read nothing about it, is the best way to really enjoy a movie. I think you do that now. That's your MO. Yeah, right? yeah right it's interesting. That? I used to always read as much as I could about movies, and now I'm moving away from that as I get older. And, you know, all the Oscar-nominated movies this year, I didn't read anything about them, really. And then I just went into them cold. So similar to what you did. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't do it by design. It just, we didn't know anything about it. And my wife and I, 
you know, it's a clock. It's ticking down at night. She's got her like, I'm going to fall asleep soon. I'm like, I, I, I don't have much left in me. Either we watch a half an hour episode times two or we watch a movie. So we happen to have enough time in us physically to bear one movie. And even that sometimes it's like, no, can't do it. It's two hours and 10 minutes. So anyway, this movie, we had time for it. We were like, okay, fine. Oh my gosh. That's how we I do the same it. thing. <laughs> if it's over two hours, I'm um, usually, yeah. I can't do that one night. I can't do it. And of course you want to give the filmmaker, they did a two hour plus movie and they want you to Absolutely. watch it all in one sitting. So dividing it up between two days or however long it, it takes you to watch it, just not really fair to them. So I try and dedicate the time, but sometimes <laughs> I just can't. How sweet of you to think of the filmmaker. It's also not fair to the filmmaker to be like, I love the movie, but the last 20 minutes I was dozing off, right? And that's also not fair to you for your own movie watching experience. So anyway, we had the time. I mean, I don't even know why we watched it in the end. I really don't know exactly why, but it was like, you know, why not? Mm -hmm. We went into it with a, why not? Let's see. Let's see. If we don't like it in 10 minutes, we'll bail out. And so sometimes that's the best way to watch a movie. At least that's what I would say about Power of the Dog. I don't really know Jane Campion's work. Looked her up after the fact. Jesse Plemons, we immediately recognized because my wife and I had watched Fargo together. One of the few shows we'd watched together. And then Kirsten Dunst comes along into the movie. We're like, wait a second. This is the same duo from Fargo. Later found out, as you say, that they're a married couple. Benedict Cumberbatch, let me just be a batch, I should say. Let me just be completely frank. Only one year ago did I stop calling him Engelbert Cumberbatch. I mean, I, this guy's name is too much of a mouthful for me. I don't know him well. I don't know his work well, only because of him playing Doctor Strange in these, what's that universe called? Avengers. Avengers? As a nerd, the Marvel as Cinematic a nerd, sure Universe, you know. indeed. Yeah, Cinematic Universe. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Only because of the Marvel Cinematic Universe has he really come to... I, he has an incredible body of work that I didn't know much about. That said, his performance in this movie I found very, very impressive. It's very... My goal when I'm doing any acting is not to oversell and overact or even to act. If anybody knows what the Meisner method is, you know, you can look that up if you have an interest in acting, but... I took a couple of Meisner classes and our teacher would always berate us by saying, you're acting, you're acting. And I was like, I thought I was taking an acting class. I thought I was supposed to be acting. Acting is not what you're supposed to do. Acting means you're pretending. The idea behind Meisner and, and many other acting techniques is don't pretend, don't play somebody playing something, just be, just be. And I really found that Benedict Cumberbatch was this person. He was being this character. So this movie, anyway, let me just get to the, you know, right now this is kind of a sales pitch. So as Asif said, it is a novel, a 1967 novel called The Power of the Dog. What does it mean? Looked it up after the fact. It is the 22nd Psalm, Psalm, P-Psalm? I think the P is silent. That's that word. <laughs> psalm from the King James Bible. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. To this moment, I still don't know what that has to do with this movie. I am not 
intelligent enough to understand metaphors, and I don't know what power of the dog means. You'll you'll tell me. Yeah. So I read an interview with Jane Campion on IndieWire. We'll link to it. So she says, uh, I didn't understand it either, but she says the power of the dog is the urges, kind of those animalistic urges, the uncontrollable urges that destroy us. And when you read that, you're like, okay, I kind of understand because there are at least two characters in this who have these underlying urges that you could describe as animalistic. Maybe. Definitely one of them does, without spoiling the movie. So that's kind of where it comes in. And it's almost the last scene of the movie you see this text written. Uh, So yeah, that's where the name comes from. As you said, cinematically unbelievable. I was like, God dang it, Montana is beautiful. Turns out it wasn't Montana, it was New Zealand, as you said. Montana is probably still beautiful, big sky country and all that. So Immediately, I was pulled in by the cinematography, and I was also pulled in by the understated acting. And gosh, if you're not well-rested, I can see how you would say this movie is boring, nothing happens. But if you have a little bit of energy in you, then nothing happening, there's something so beautiful about it. And you know, you were exaggerating by saying that this movie, I don't know where you were going with that, this movie changed my life or whatever you're going to say, but... It was really, like, incredibly impressive. Now, I love cinematography, but I most, more than anything else, I love acting. And then sometimes I'll think about the directing, like, oh, that was an interesting directorial choice that was made. All those things were in my mind, but also, like, they weren't front of mind. Like, I wasn't thinking about those. It's just a movie that sort of grabs you in and you're like, okay, this is your tone. This is your, this is your energy. Uh, it's, it's slow. But I'm here for the journey. And I really thought it was quite interesting. There's one thing that I was, that took me a while to get into, which is the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons are brothers, like the least brotherly looking brothers. Anyway, once you get over that, you know, this is the Burbank brothers are, you know, they have a mansion, but like many people from that day, it's this, uh, you know, in the New Yorker, it was a combination of hard physical work and quiet wealth that characterized these old ranches. And, and that's what they do. And they work extremely hard, particularly Benedict Cumberbatch. And, you know, we learn about him that he, Benedict Cumberbatch, is he looks like just this, you know, dirty, old, uncouth person. But it turns out he is Phi Beta Kappa Yale graduate who has eschewed all connection to, you know, wealthy society and that upper class. So when his brother, George, played by Jesse Clemens, says, you please clean yourself up. The governor is coming to dine. He says, no luck. I stink and I like it. Later, you'll find out as you do some reading that uh, he actually stank. In real life, he he went all method actor for this. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, who's to say if that's necessary or not necessary? But I will say that I found it to be a pretty terrific performance. Yeah. And just to finish with the synopsis, I mean, then the conflict kind of comes into this movie when George, played by Jesse Plemons, meets Kirsten Dunn's character and kind of wants to settle down with her. And Benedict Cumberbatch has some issues with that. And then, of course, it also introduces, as we said, the son of Kirsten Dunn's character, Peter Gordon, and how he gets involved in all this. And I think that's probably where we should leave the synopsis without spoiling anything in terms of what happens in this movie. 
A couple of things of trivia that you may not have known there, Ali. One is that Elizabeth Moss, who's worked with Jane Campion in the past, Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men is how most people know her, and The Handmaid's Tale. She was supposed to play Kirsten Dunst's Supermodel? role. Supermodel? No. Supermodel Elizabeth no. Moss? That's some other Moss. Yeah, that's... Who's that? Well, you opened this with saying that you may not know, so I went to my my least knowing part of my brain. Yeah, no, okay, I Elizabeth think, Moss. Yeah, no, Elizabeth Moss, great actress. Anyway, you know, by the way, here's a funny story about Elizabeth Moss. She, is, she was married for a very short time to Fred Armisen, and, you know, she was interviewed afterward. They got divorced, and... Uh, they said, you know, why did you get divorced? And she's like, well, Fred does a really good acting job of trying to be a human being. It's like <laughs> the craziest thing. And you're like, oh, my God. Anyway, you guys got to look that up. I'll see if uh, I can find rough. that quote, uh, that interview from rough. her. Anyway, she that's a total digression. She was supposed to play Kirsten Dunst's role. She, I think it was The Handmaid's Tale. There was too much overlap, so she couldn't you know, make it work. And then Paul Dano. Paul Dano has been in lots of movies. He was in Prisoners that great thriller from a couple of years ago with Hugh Jackman. And he plays the Riddler in the new Batman movie. He was supposed to be Jesse Plemons role and that he couldn't do it for scheduling reasons as well. And so they kind of shifted to Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. Yep. Paul Dano, for my money, the best thing that that guy has ever done, and I'm sure he's done other great stuff, is his role as a teenager in Little Miss Sunshine. Oh yeah. He was great. Playing character. Excellent. I mean, he's a, he's God, a very, he's very good so actor. Good. And, yeah. As you said, more trivia, Benedict went full method for this. Uh, as you said, he didn't bathe. He smoked so many cigarettes in this movie <laughs> that he got nicotine poisoning. Like, come on. Kids, kids, that's what happens when you go to method. You never go to method. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then the person who wrote the score for this movie is Johnny Greenwood. And do you know what band he is in? I definitely don't. He definitely is don't. the lead guitarist and keyboardist for Radiohead. Oh, man. So, I, you know, I we're seeing a lot guys. of these guys who were these big artists in these big rock bands kind of moving into scoring. You know, Trent Reznor does a lot of scores. He's been nominated for the Oscar several times. So it's cool. I didn't know that, that Johnny Greenwood does this. So that's basically it. So, okay. So we're going to transition here in a second. So this is full disclosure. So Ali and I talked about this, and he wants me to put in not just a spoiler warning, because we are about to talk about the ending of the movie and our opinions of it. So if you haven't seen the movie, you can... We kind of have to, by the way. If we're talking about Anthrax next, we have to right. you so, know, illustrate for you clearly why we're talking about Anthrax. So the spoiler is not like... It's not to hurt your feelings. It's just we have yeah. to. It's just yeah, I mean, way around it. Overall, Anthrax does have something to do with the movie, but maybe that's the most we'll say right now. Now. But Ali also wanted to put a warning here that I'm about to give you my opinions of this movie. And he thinks, because I'm so influential to our listeners, it's going to taint your perception of the movie, whether you've already watched it or are about I mean, to. Yes, please skip ahead if you don't want any spoilers. Look, here's my thing. I always remember my friend Q, our friend Q, who we uh, love uh, to death. He is a notorious spoiler for me. Other people would be like, "This he's not spoiling the movie, but he does spoil the movie in the sense that, so Ratatouille, okay? You know yeah, Ratatouille? there's a lot of suspense in that movie, so I'm sure a lot of it really does spoil to you. He told you the I rat, like to he told you the rat knows how to cook. That's what he told me. No, you know what he told me? You know what he told me? He told me, make sure you have a tissue box handy. Ratatouille is, is super emotional. 
And I'm like, don't tell me that. He's like, what? I just said, you're going to cry. That's all I said. And I was so ready for that. I didn't cry once. And I cry in movies. I do cry in movies. And I never cried once in Ratatouille because he put that I didn't either. I feel like you're doing it. It was because of the grossness of a rat in the kitchen. I didn't cry for that. But anyway, (laughs) uh, I didn't cry in Ratatouille either. I I, I, I had the same reaction as you. But so so when someone prepares you for that, it kind of throws you off. Okay. Exactly. And Asif is about to prepare you in his own special that way. sounds like so, a you problem not a listeners of doctor versus comedian problem but anyway yeah, maybe okay maybe so we'll see basically what we'll put in the timestamps. so you, if the spoiler starts now you could just skip over to our discussion of anthrax it will be in the show notes okay spoiler start now now <laughs> now right now so, and we'll we'll tie this in with my impressions of the movie. As you guys heard, Ali uh, definitely liked the movie. And listen, I like this movie too. I think it's three quarters of a pretty good movie. But a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, I don't – Jane Campion, I'm not a huge fan of. And I think I even said this a couple months ago on the podcast when you first told us that you watched this movie. But I, get, I yeah. gave it a chance, obviously, because, you know, it's, as we said, award-winning. I think her movies, people – sometimes give them a bit more credit than they deserve in terms of how amazing they are. I think overhyped though, overhyped is kind of a lame criticism for a movie. Cause like, well, if you didn't read anything, you wouldn't know how hyped it was. Right. So it would just maybe the same thing as, as you getting Ratatouille kind of spoiled for you. Cause people are talking about it too much, but I've never been overly impressed by your movies. I do think it's beautiful. I think it looks amazing. The cinematography is probably the best of the year. And I think there are, Three amazing actors in this movie, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemings, and Cody Smith-McPhee, especially Cody Smith-McPhee. They're all good, but God, he's such a good actor. I didn't even recognize him in this movie. That's how good he was. So, but Benedict Cumberbatch, I just, and listen, I really know him mainly from a few of his movies and and the Marvel uh, universe. I just didn't buy him at all. I think he only has two ways of acting, British guy and American guy. I thought he was acting... Like, you know, he also plays the Grinch in the new CGI animated Grinch Who Stole Christmas, which is pretty good, much better than the Jim Carrey ones we've watched in the past couple of Christmases with the family. He's playing the same character. He's playing the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, but dressed up as a cowboy. I kept thinking during this that he's trying to be Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood, you know, cowboyish person who's a total douche. Like, that's the, I mean, like, I don't know. I didn't buy it. I I just thought he was pretty bad. I think it hinges on the movie. The other strange thing about this movie is I watched it, and as I'm watching it, I'm like, what is the point of this? And that's, I know, kind of a lame criticism as well, because, but I watch lots of movies. I mean, listen, I watched all of Twin Peaks, The Revival by David Lynch. It makes no sense, but I loved every minute I watched it. And so it doesn't have to make sense or even, but it just has to thematically hold together. And as I watch this, I'm like, what's the point of this movie? It's called a psychological drama, but it kind of turns into a thriller towards the end. And I don't know. And the other thing is, who's the main character? Because a main character in a movie should be the person who changes. It changes uh, you, over time. You know, to our listeners, don't you feel like that's a spoiler? If somebody goes, I watched that movie and I thought the whole time, what's the point of this movie? I'm, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that as a viewer. So I do think that's a spoiler. Way worse than my Ratatouille spoiler. 
I don't know. So anyway, I, I thought it was, that was good. I thought the ending kind of falls apart. I'm not sure it quite makes sense. And it, it kind of becomes this kind of thriller. And of course, so the spoiler is Cody Smith McPhee's character is so distraught by kind of the psychological trauma that Cumberbatch's character inflicts on Rose, played by Kristen Dunst, that he devises this plan because he's in medical school to infect Benedict Cumberbatch's character with anthrax, and then he eventually dies. But all this was when Benedict Cumberbatch's character is actually kind of warming up to Cody Smith McPhee's character, you know, because possibly, well, definitely Cumberbatch's character has some repressed homosexual tendencies or identity, and maybe Cody Smith McPhee's character does. That's never quite clear. So, um, that's basically what happens. So the ending kind of turns into this, and, and then at the end, Cumberbatch dies, and uh, everybody lives happily ever after? I don't know. <laughs> that is a pretty scathing <laughs> review of Benedict and his life and him as a person. But look, as I told you, I just got his name right like two years ago. So I, I don't know. I don't have any of that emotional baggage that you do. I thought being a lover of Marvel that you are, I thought you would, oh my God, Dr. Strange is in this. But of course you go way deeper than that and rip this man apart. British guy. And an American what? guy. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, listen, I, do I think the movie is worth watching? I actually do because I think the other performances are so good and it looks amazing. So I, I think it's a good movie. It's like a B you know, it's, it's yeah, and imagine how good those performances must be if Asif doesn't care for the lead and also doesn't care for the director and still says it's worth watching. So I would agree with that. And I don't want to overstate it, but by this time, you've had the movie spoiled for you anyway, if you're still listening to this part and you, you haven't watched it. But I think it is to be watched. Absolutely. So as we've been mentioning, there is a loose connection between Power of the Dog and Anthrax. And I thought it was interesting to, you know, I, I think we know what it is loosely, but people don't really understand maybe what Anthrax is and what it does. And then there's another thing to talk about, which is the Anthrax, I guess, attacks or... Uh, is that the way to say it? There were attacks that happened where people were opening their, you know, some, some people of note politicians were opening envelopes that contained anthrax in it. And there were actually, I don't know if people remember this. I certainly had forgotten, but people had died because of this. And I, I do remember this new fear coming to fore, which was, wait, should I be hyper concerned every time I open an envelope? Nobody wanted to kill me as it turned out, but that's a thing. Like that's a, that's a crazy thing. You know, when you're a younger person to be like, wait a minute, Am I now? Look, I had already seen the Seinfeld episode with George Costanza's wife licking those envelopes and then, uh, you know, getting poisoned and dying from that. Now I was like, wait, that's not a joke anymore. You can actually die if somebody wants to kill you. They can do it through your mail. So I think I'd love to discuss both those things. Yeah, and they're both very interesting. And as I was looking up anthrax, I kind of did a deep dive into the, these attacks, as you said. And I forgot, like, for example, they occurred in 2001 weeks after September 11th. And that's crazy. It's just so crazy. crazy. So I think, why don't we do this? We'll do two separate sections. We'll do this first section on anthrax, just 
talking about the bacteria and how it infects you and things like that. And then we'll do a separate section. I'll do a timestamp for those on our show notes so people can kind of go from one to the other if they want. You're the boss, baby. Okay. So anthrax, what is it? It's a disease uh, caused by bacteria. The bacteria is called Bacillus anthracis, and it occurs naturally in the soil. It's found all over the world, but more often in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and southern and eastern Europe and south and central America. So more in warmer climates is where you find it, but it can occur anywhere. Okay. So this is something that it exists organically. And then people with, uh, you know, ill intentions take that thing that's occurring organically in the earth and use it for... Right. We'll talk about how that ended up happening a bit later. But yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a naturally occurring thing. It wasn't created in a lab or anything like that. So people get sick if they come in contact with infected animals or animal products, uh, but you can't catch it from one person to another. So if a human has it, you cannot get it from them. It's only if oh, you come in. Yeah, if you, you can catch it from a living being, but that being has to be animals, an yeah. animal. And so interestingly, there's actually four types of infections that you can get and you kind of categorize them by either how you got them, uh, how you contracted the anthrax or what body system it's involved. So there's the first one is cutaneous anthrax. Then there's inhalational anthrax. Gastrointestinal anthrax is the third one. And the fourth one is injectional anthrax. So maybe we can just kind of go through these a bit because they're all a bit different. So that cutaneous form, so that's getting it on your skin, that is pretty mild. But the other three, one-third of patients will die from the other three, inhalational, gastrointestinal, and injectional. So cutaneous is not that serious. You can recover from it. Correct. But if you, say, had a cut on your hand, that would then become an injectional form, which would be very, very serious. So basically, the cutaneous anthrax is like 95% of the cases. You get the spores go into your skin, and then you get a painless swelling-type lesion, which then forms what's called a black eschar on top of it, which is kind of like a, a black kind of scab that often doesn't go away. The uh, inhalational form but is like- Painless. Painless is strange, right? Weirdest thing. Okay. The inhalational form is called wool sorter disease, because I think it was- but people who sorted wool in contaminated animals, you get the aerosolized spores, and then you get a severe pneumonia from that. The gastrointestinal form is if you eat contaminated food, and then you get ulcers all down your throat and your intestines, swelling of your body. Uh, sounds quite, you know, uncomfortable to say the least. And then the injectional one is usually with IV drug use because there's a lot of contamination in some countries of heroin with anthrax. I'm not really sure exactly why. And so that could be very similar. So it looks similar to cutaneous, but then you get disseminated disease. In other words, it spreads to your entire body and you can become very sick with that. Well, I'm no, I'm no, uh, you know, heroin expert by any means. Wouldn't know it if it was staring me right in the face. But I guess you can imagine opium. You know, the, those poppies they grow in fields, and in those fields yeah. could be, you know, animals or. Uh, yeah, there was actually outbreaks of injectional anthrax in the United Kingdom in 2009 and 2010, and they thought it was from imported uh, heroin from the Middle East that was somehow contaminated. Maybe that's how it was. I'll give you another interesting case. There was two cases of cutaneous anthrax in Connecticut, 
And this was from a family who in Connecticut made drums from goat hides imported from West Africa. So one of them was a drum maker and one of them was actually a child of one of these drum makers, like one of the cases. And they they just thought there was anthrax in the house and he kind of got infected by that, even though the child wasn't making any drums. It's like such a bad trip. It's like you have so many worries already for your health. And then to add anthrax to your worries, I'm back to 2001 again. You're getting me back to like, oh my God, should I go and then inspect my drums from goat hides? I don't have any, but if I did, I would wash them or something. I don't know. This is crazy. Yeah. Well, occupation or activities that, you know, involve working with animals or hides, like that's one of the main risk factors. And so, you know, with the inhalational form, it's interesting, like you usually start with a it can seem minor at the beginning, right? It looks like you just have a cough and flu-like symptoms about four days, and then you can get very sick after it's kind of incubated in your body and then spread. And then those patients become very sick. And as we mentioned, they can, they can die. Can any of these four forms of anthrax be treated? Yeah, and you use antibiotics for them. That's kind of the mainstay of treatment. And it depends on which form you have. So the more minor forms, you would just give one antibiotic, usually like a fluoroquinolone antibiotic, like Cipro, ciprofloxacin, something like that. There's other antibiotics you could use. And if you have the more severe forms, then you add on other antibiotics. So for example, if you have the systemic form with the IV root of infection, then you do give two antibiotics. But if you had the systemic form with meningitis, like it looks like you have a meningitis, but it's because of anthrax, three antibiotics. And then you can also give an antitoxin that will help these patients. So there definitely is treatment. The hard part is sometimes figuring out that's what people have, right? And especially in North America where it's less common, it might be hard to kind of figure out what's going on. All right, let's talk about these attacks that were in 2001, even though I thought it was just like, I don't know, seven years ago. That's how traumatic that was, that it lives, you know, it lives in recent memory for me. But I'd forgotten until you mentioned it, that it was in the weeks after 9-11, because, you know, 9-11 was also this like, not to downplay what happened, game-changing event, you know, for Muslims as well, for people who lived in North America, you just sort of wondered what does the future hold is this what life is is this something we're at risk at now is you know is this the beginning of something and to have the anthrax attacks coupled in there you know after you mentioned it i was like oh man i do remember that where we were just like is the whole world going crazy what's happening what's what how does this now part of the world luckily they they kind of went away or they didn't ramp up, but they were pretty serious anyway. And I'd love for you to go. You said you did a deep dive into yeah. it. I'd love for you to go go back and walk. Yeah, through. this, I mean, could probably be a whole podcast series. And it reminds me of, uh, you'll, we'll get to who the main suspect is. And there's evidence that he did it and evidence that he didn't do it. It's kind of like, it reminds me of the first season of Serial, right? Like where yeah. you just don't know whether this person did it or not. And your mind keeps going back and forth. So it's very interesting. So as you said, occurred on September 18th, one week after the September 11th attacks. So these anthrax spores were put in envelopes and mailed to several news media outlets and to Democratic senators, Tom Daschle and Patrick 
Leahy, and overall five people died and 17 others were infected. I forgot that people died from this. I mean, imagine this, like that's how you died and your family has to deal with this. Oh. It's it's crazy. So they were mailed. So this is what they were able to piece together. They were mailed from a mailbox in Princeton, New Jersey, near Princeton University, actually. And because they tested a bunch of mailboxes because they went backwards looking at, at where they were mailed from, the area, and they found that after looking at 600 mailboxes and, and testing them for anthrax, only one on Nassau Street in Princeton tested positive. And then the return address was a fourth grade class in a fictitious middle school. And so there was a note accompanying the anthrax. So you'd have the powder in there and the envelopes were sealed really well. Some people say, and, and folded in a certain way. Some people say that the perpetrator actually didn't want to infect people. He just wanted to send them warning, but he didn't actually want to. So Ali, I have a screenshot here that I want you to read. These are the notes that were written to the various media outlets and to the senators, uh, Dashiell and Leahy. These were the notes that were accompanying them. So can you read these notes? I mean, I can. Why do you want me to read it, for God's sake? I People like think you're monster, the, the terrorist. <laughs> exactly. I am reading from something, 9-11-01. You cannot stop us, cannot, spelt incorrectly. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America death to Israel, Allah is great. Yeah, nobody take that yes. clip out and then post that on social media of Ali saying that. So the other one reads, which was sent to the New York Post and NBC News, this is next, take penicillin now, penicillin is misspelled, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. So it's interesting, why would they say take penicillin now? Because penicillin is another antibiotic that can be used for anthrax. So they're basically telling you what this is and what the treatment is. So it was very interesting that that was there. And that also kind of confounded investigators. Another thing yeah. that confounded investigators was after this, there was a bunch of copycat crimes where things that were not anthrax were mailed, like just harmless white powder was mailed to someone at the New York Times, for example. So it became yeah. very complicated to try and figure it out. So then what happened is the authorities interviewed – it was the biggest – one of the biggest investigations in FBI history. They interviewed 9,000 people, conducted 67 searches, issued 6,000 subpoenas. They traveled to six continents trying to figure out what happened here. Wow. And of course, immediately after these attacks, the White House pressured Robert Mueller, who was the FBI director. We all know Mueller uh, now, but uh, he was the FBI director at the time. Who did he want to blame for this? Muslims. Yeah, Al-Qaeda, right? Because it would make the most sense. and But that was kind of felt to not be the case after an investigation. And thankfully, they didn't do that. So the first person they had as a person of interest was this guy, Stephen Hatfield, who was a prominent virologist. And the FBI publicly searched his apartment. So it wasn't like a clandestine operation. It was kind of well known. And basically, this guy's reputation was ruined afterwards. Oh, he had nothing to do he with it? had nothing to do with it. So he ended up suing, oh years later, the FBI, the Justice Department, and many others uh, for violating his rights and his privacy. And they he got a settlement in 2008 for $5.8 million. Also sued, just so you know, he sued the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and Reader's Digest as well 
Yeah. <laughs> Digest. Come Digest just accumulate other articles? I didn't know that they had original reporting, but and New York Times that kind of fell through that he didn't get any settlement from them, but he did get a undisclosed amount from Vanity Fair and Reader's Digest. So but you know, like you said, his reputation as a virologist was ruined, his life was ruined. And of course I'm bringing it up now. He did not do it, just he's not a suspect. Just so And neither did Al Qaeda. Yeah, yes. We so they did a lot of other dirty of stuff, course. but not this. So then it comes down to this guy named Bruce Ivins, not Evans, I-V-I-N-S. So he worked for 18 years at the government's biodefense labs at Fort Detrick in Maryland, and he was a top biodefense researcher. So the issue was he ended up committing suicide on August 1st, 2008, at the age of 62, right when apparently what was reported was he was about to be charged with crimes related to this terrorist attack. So why was he a person of interest? When they did the analysis of the anthrax strains, because there's different strains that exist, there's one called the AMES strain, A-M-E-S, named after the location where it was kind of first uncovered in the U.S., This AIM strain is really only found in one specific place in America, which is at Fort Derrick, where Ivan's worked. Where he worked. Dude, this is very... Now I'm seeing why you were suggesting this would make a great podcast, because the White House is pressuring them to say Al-Qaeda just to, you know, pacify a nation that is already on edge. Then there's a Hatfield guy. After you, you just said they went to six continents and they subpoenaed so many people, and they still got the wrong guy. Ruined his life. Although that five point eight million, I'm sure, you know, made up for some of that. But he couldn't work. He couldn't. You know, who's going to hire that guy? And this guy kills himself. What is it? Days, weeks before the FBI is about to charge him. Well, that's what they say. That's the other part. It's that's what they say. Who knows? Now we got this Ivan's guy kind of like scapegoating this whole thing, whether he did it or not, we don't know. But, well, it gets more interesting. So then there was one specific flask, if you could believe it, flask RMR1029, and using various lab techniques, they were able to find that the parent material for the anthrax spore powder that was used came from this specific flask. And then the FBI claims that Ivins has sole control over this flask. So it seems like an open and shut case. They said, you know, in August 2008, the um, U.S. attorney said basically he had control over this. And so this is probably, we feel he's the sole perpetrator. Not the U.S. attorney, to be clear. Evans, yes. But then, and to make things even more kind of like to support the FBI case, Evans did the following. He told a mental health counselor more than a year before the attack that he was interested in a young woman who lived out of town, and he mixed a poison that he was going to use. He's going to watch her play in a soccer game, and if she lost, he was going to poison her. Like He told a counselor oh this. The counselor was so alarmed by the emotionless, specific description of the plan that she alerted the head of her clinic and a psychiatrist and the police department. And the police said, well, we can't do anything because um, we don't have the woman's name or address, so we don't know. He also told a different therapist in 2008 that he planned to kill his co-workers and go out in a blaze of glory. And his psychiatrist, a guy named Dr. David Irwin, called him homicidal, sociopathic, with clear intentions. 
And then to make it even worse, he was actually working with the FBI during their investigation. So there's allegations that he provided them false samples to kind of throw them off the case. Uh, throw them off uh, the scent. Yeah. Unbelievable. So that sounds pretty, pretty damning, right? But I want to say yes, but, but there's then a but. there's other things that make you think about uh, was this really something that happened? In fact, when you actually look at the people who were in the lab where he worked, the FBI said he was the only person who could have exposure to it. But then actually they said no, actually actually it could be more like 10 scientists had regular access to the anthrax stock. And then there were visitors and other people coming in, etc. So then they said no, actually it's more like 419 people had access to this anthrax. <laughs> Suddenly, small alteration. That's right. The other problem, so lots of other people could have gotten access to the anthrax. Second of all, there is no way the FBI in any way could place him by that New Jersey mailbox in Princeton. The FBI's own genetic consultant, a woman named Claire Fraser Liggett, said that it's very unusual that there was no anthrax found in his house, his vehicles, or his belongings. And the other thing, there was a microbiologist who worked at the Army's biodefense lab in Maryland, where Evans had worked, and this guy named Henry Hain. And he said, actually, we did not have the technology back in 2001 in this lab to produce the quantity of spores and the type of spores. He's just like, it wasn't possible. And he said, also, there is really no way that the lab techs who worked with Ivins or everybody else would have not known about this because there would have been anthrax floating around into the lab, into the animal cages, and the offices. He said you would have had I mean, dead. But but as you said, Evans was a top right biodefense researcher, right? So he would have taken precautions against that. But I, this is ridiculously interesting. Anyway, so in the end, like we said, the FBI said he's the sole perpetrator, and in fact, there was pressure from the Obama government to not reopen the case or have a independent investigation into it because they just wanted this done and finished. One sole perpetrator, whatever. But lots of people say there at least has to be more people if he was keeping all this anthrax under wraps somehow and not contaminating the rest of it. So in the end, the National Academy of Science did an independent report. So it wasn't like another policing organization looking at it. It was the National Academy of Sciences. And in February of 2011, they released a report saying it's impossible to reach any definitive conclusion about the origins of the anthrax in the letters based on the available scientific evidence. And they said they challenged the FBI's assumption that a single spore batch of anthrax was maintained by Evans at his laboratory, and that was the parent material which was used to create more spores for the letters. They just did not think that that was a reasonable conclusion. Okay, this is crazy. I mean, you said it at the beginning that this would make a great podcast, but I don't know how, what, you know, serial, the case against Adnan Syed, I don't know if you've seen that documentary, but this has got at least that much contradictory evidence that this would be amazing to, plus government is squashing it. Government is trying to, you know, redirect the FBI's attention elsewhere. And, you know, they're trying to close it down. And I understand why they would try to close it down. This is a worry that your society, your people at large, don't need to have. You've got enough problems already. You don't need to add this to it. 
But I would love to know at this time, now that we are sort of removed mm-hmm. from all of that, right? 2008 was when he took his own life, Evans. It's amazing. Somebody, somebody. Asif, why don't you There you go. I'll tell you, there's one unintended consequence to these attacks. Do you know what it is? No. In society. So I'll give you an analogy. Right now, after the COVID pandemic, you know, what's totally increased is streaming and stuff like that. But, you know, Amazon doing incredibly well, home delivery, Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes, DoorDash, all these things have have increased. So what happened in 2001, which would have been a similar thing? Was it early Netflix? Where, close, where it close. Was like the videos, they would oh, mail yeah, the videos to your Oh, yeah, that's like Redbox. House? or Not Redbox, but yeah, early Netflix. Yeah, no, exactly. it's, it's even more big than that because it's hard to remember because this is 20 years ago. But this is yeah. was the nail in the coffin of snail mail, essentially, where like – and, you know, U.S. mail took a big nosedive and especially U.S. media companies. U.S. media companies like do not – every check, every bill, every letter – we don't care. Send them by email. We want no part of wow. you mailing these things to us, you know? And so the cultural shift to email pushed everything online. That's our show for today. Hopefully you guys found our conversations interesting. Let us know what you thought about the power of the dog. Again, Ali and I, don't disagree that much, but pretty big disagreement today. And let us know what you think about uh, anthrax and that whole uh, situation with the mail attacks. Hopefully you found that interesting as well. Reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com, drvcomedian on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're everywhere. Let us know what you think. Ali, anything to plug? Just life, you know, life is all right. Things are opening up. I'm you know, psychologically, I don't know if I'm ready for all this, but, you know, masks are going to be coming off and vaccination passports are being demanded less and less. So, you know, I hope people are finding some comfort in that, that the perhaps the end is in sight. Now, if you were an epidemiologist right now, you'd be like, no, do not say that we're not through it yet. But, you know, just speaking for people's mental health, I hope you're feeling a little bit positive in a way you haven't in the last couple of years. This we're, we're kind of marking the two-year anniversary of when the pandemic started. So on that note, um, I wish you all the best. And also, you have your rebranded podcast. This podcast tastes delicious. <laughs> so, You know what? And speaking of society opening up, we do have our rebranded podcast. This podcast is delicious. Oh, I missed, I missed said it. I said this podcast tastes delicious. Is delicious. Is delicious. Stop trying to sabotage my other podcast, Asif. Oh, boy. Jealousy. Jealousy. Okay, but remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues, we talk about it for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.